Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a very special show. Originally, we were going to be at 12 o'clock with a couple of guests, but they have got COVID-19, which I'm sure many of you looking around your friendship groups, people at work, there's a pretty similar pattern at the moment. Now, it's nearly two years since a cluster of unexplained pneumonia cases was identified in Wuhan province in China. Since then, the virus identified a secure acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2, which we have all come to know as COVID, has officially killed over 5 million people globally. That's likely to be a drastic underestimate. According to The Economist, uh, which has been tracking excess deaths, the most reliable indicator of how many people have died, around 18.2 million are likely to have died in less than two years of the biggest public health emergency since the Spanish flu. Up to 21.3 million, a death toll comparable to that of World War One, which was spread over four years. Now, it's a year since mass vaccination began, yet here we are all over again talking about potential severe restrictions. Already, Netherlands has gone into a harsh lockdown. Uh, that's thanks to Omicron. Now, except for aficionados of the Greek alphabet, that was not something we were talking about until about three weeks ago, and yet it's now the dominant strain here in the United Kingdom. So how bad is Omicron? What is the data telling us? Illness, hospitalization, death. What do we know from data abroad? And what do we think this means for the for our current situation, for the National Health Service, and how we ever escape this? Now, but to just to we're, we're going to be joined now by the fantastic John Byrne Murdoch at the Financial Times, who has really been a lifeline for myself and so many others, the data, his data crunching, his analysis, all the way through lockdown. I'll just bring in John straight away. John, thanks for joining us, not least during all of this. No um, you're doing well, hopefully, hopefully so far. Uh, yeah, I've, I've somehow, somehow remained COVID free for the whole two years, as far as I know. So, Blimey. Yeah, yeah I was, uh, I, I got hit on so-called Freedom Day. So there we have right, it. Right, right. Look, I'll just start just quickly. That, again, it's a, it's a big honor to join us. And, and for those who aren't familiar with John, who, I'd be surprised anyone who's been following COVID particularly carefully that you haven't seen his brilliant work um, in the Financial Times and on social media. Let me just, here's a little clip from Chris Whitty last week. There are several things we don't know, but all the things that we do know are bad. Does that still hold? Good question. Um, I think I think a lot of people sort of liked uh, Witty's phrasing there, but I think I think it's tricky. Um, you know, we do know. I'd say we know some things which are not necessarily terrible. Um, one of those is that we're starting to get early confirmation from the UK of a pattern we saw in South Africa, which is that a larger portion of COVID patients being admitted to hospitals 
with Omicron than compared to previous variants are actually not being treated for COVID. They were admitted for some other reason. So, so there is this confirmation that we may be starting to see, well, essentially because, because the Omicron variant spreads so efficiently, if we look only at, for example, the numbers of people in hospital who've tested positive for COVID, in this wave, that's probably actually slightly going to overstate the level of pressure the NHS is coming under because more of those are going to be people who went to hospital for other reasons um, and, and then incidentally tested positive. So that's, that's one thing. Um, the other is there was this study out of South Africa done by a, a private healthcare um, organisation over there last week, which did suggest that even after they attempted to adjust for whether or not people were vaccinated, whether or not people had had COVID-19 before, it did look as, as though the severity of disease from the Omicron variant could be modestly lower than what we'd seen with previous variants. Again, not by a huge amount, and that result was very preliminary, but I would say there are a couple of pieces of not, not cast iron um, evidence, but pieces of information from the scientific community which suggest that there is, I would say, um, genuine reason to be optimistic that this might not be quite as bad as what has, we've, what has come before it. But the, the majority of evidence we have seen um, doesn't point in that direction. So there's, you know, there's evidence pointing both ways or, or indeed a lack of evidence. Um, but, I, but I think there are a couple of bits that we can be hopeful about. So in terms of this drastic rise of Omicron, here's a graph which was shared by Dr. Theo Sanderson, which I saw you shared on your own social media accounts. So this is Delta. For those listening on the podcast, we're showing a graph of Delta, which is around three to 4,000 cases a day, going up and down, up and down. And then suddenly, Amazon, uh, sorry, Amazon, Amazon, I just made up a new variant. Omicron suddenly explodes. So I suppose... The question when there's a lot of conversation at the moment about is this intrinsically milder, which and because kind of colliding with a, a different conversation of given the level of people who've been infected with previous variants, myself, I'm like, I've got Delta, um, in terms of you know, vaccination, in terms of obviously different levels of protection that might afford as well, in terms of the booster program, which has been rolled out very very quickly now and how long it takes for the booster to be effective. What's your take on that debate in terms of, you know, and obviously bearing in mind, we've only had this variant for just over three weeks. So this is still very much lots of unknowns, but in terms of the kind of what we know so far in terms of inherently, is it milder and those other variables about vaccination boosters and prior infection? Yeah, it's, it's such an important question because something I found myself um, replying to a lot of people on Twitter about on Friday over and over again was this idea that um, people look at the data from South Africa, which has been very promising. It's shown that um, if you compare it to South Africa's Delta wave, the percentage of cases ending up in hospitalization or indeed death is much lower than was seen with the Delta wave. So people look at that. And even after adjusting for age, for example, the share of COVID positive patients in hospitals in South Africa who uh, who lose their lives is much lower than we'd seen in previous waves. So people look at that and say, okay, well, that looks like the Omicron variant is milder. It's less severe because for the same number of cases, you get fewer um, people developing severe disease or dying. And that is all true. But the big question is, where is that mildness coming from? Because the thing that I found a little bit frustrating over the last three weeks is that we saw exactly the same thing happen when Delta landed in the UK um, in, in uh, late May, early June of this year, which is we saw a lot of cases, but because of the vaccination campaign, 
primarily. Some some of this was due to protection um, among people who'd been infected previously, but most of it was from the vaccination campaign. Because of that, we also saw in the UK a much lower percentage of cases developing into severe disease, hospitalisation and death. But at the time, of course, no one was saying, oh, it looks like Delta's milder. We were saying, look what, look at the impact of vaccines, look at the impact of immunity. So this is the thing that um, irks me a little bit, because we're now seeing a broadly similar pattern play out in South Africa. Now, it's true that the the extent of the reduction in severe disease in South Africa is it's, it's a bigger reduction in extent than we saw in the UK from vaccination alone. But we're still seeing broadly the same pattern. And so when people say, OK, well, I guess we can expect that same thing to happen here in the UK, which is that although cases are going to go up a lot at the moment, hospitalizations and deaths won't. Now, that kind of assumes that since June, July, since Delta landed in the UK, we've had another big boost in immunity. And although, of course, that's true to an extent, we've had the boosters. What we don't know is whether the boosters compared to, as in, in many cases, six months old second doses. We don't know whether the boosters are, are, are giving us sort of extra protection from what we had against Delta or whether they essentially take us back to where we were six months ago with Delta. And that really matters because with cases now going well, well above what we'd seen at any point in the pandemic previously, it's really important whether we're saying that, OK, like with Delta, maybe about um, maybe we'll see about two percent of those cases end up in hospital. Because if that's true, then a, a huge rise in cases still produces a very, very large number of hospitalizations, perhaps as many as we saw last winter. Or are we saying that for some other reasons, perhaps boosters, but also perhaps a reduction in the actual severity of the Omicron variant, instead of seeing 2% of cases um, end up requiring treatment in hospital, now perhaps we'll only see 1% or half a percent. And that's what we just don't know yet, because in South Africa, while we can say their outcomes have improved, we can't tell how much of that is to do with, with immunity, with vaccination, with prior infection and how much is to do with innate, uh, an innate drop in severity. So that's why we're still seeing these models come out which forecast potentially quite dire outcomes. And we, we just don't have enough information yet on on what the, what the UK's immunity wall, as it were, looks like in terms of how that's evolved over the last six months and whether Omicron is going to turn out to just be less virulent for any given person, full stop. I mean, do you think the problem in terms of the comparisons with South Africa and at the moment, there does seem to be calls for optimism, cautious calls for optimism based on the data we've got, is South Africa has actually been exceptionally badly hit by COVID in a way that I don't think people really appreciate because its official deaths are around 90,000, which is bad enough. But that's such a drastic underestimate. And um, our excess deaths and our official deaths are actually not that badly unaligned anymore, are they? But in South Africa, up to 300,000, slightly less than 300,000 people are estimated as excess deaths. South Africa's population is slightly lower than ours. It's about 60 million compared to about 66, 67 million people here. So their excess death toll has been twice as high on a slightly smaller population. Does that mean basically far more people statistically got COVID in South Africa they also have a younger population. They have less older people. So what we've seen is Omicron go through a population which actually has already lots of people to be really macabre who are likely to succumb to COVID have already died in a way that isn't the case here in Britain. What do you think? 
There's, that's definitely, I think, certainly aspects of that are true. So it's absolutely right that estimates of um, seroprevalence, so the percentage of people in South Africa who are believed to have had COVID in the past, estimates of that coming into the Omicron wave, so before Omicron, put the figure at around 80% of people in, in the country, so 80%, 80%, who had had COVID in the past and recovered. In the UK, um, like today, that figure is probably around forty percent. But it, but before, um, well, before before our Delta wave, at least it was it was closer to I think twenty percent. So going into their Omicron wave, far far more of the South African population had been exposed to the virus, which means they had some level of immunity um, than we had coming into our into our Delta wave. So and, and look, there's another way that some people have pointed at point, pointed this out as well, which is that. After the Delta wave in South Africa, which was extremely severe, their case numbers had got exceptionally, exceptionally low. I think lower than at any point in the entire pandemic over there, which is a very good sign that there was enough immunity circulating um, that the virus was just finding finding it very difficult to find new people to infect. Whereas in the UK, Delta has been bubbling along here at moderately high case levels since June. Um, So that alone suggests that there was in terms of immunity from infection, there was arguably more of that in South Africa um, than we've had here, which is which is why, as you say, a, a, lo- a very large portion of their observed reduction in severe disease could be due to that. Um, but there's a, a couple of other things you mentioned there. So one is this idea that um, the the population that is left over, as it were, are those who are likely to to be better, to be more able at standing up against COVID. And that is true. But I think that's that is also true in the UK. Um, again, it's true that more people in South Africa have, have been infected with this in the past. But certainly, again, in that sort of slightly macabre way of talking about it, a lot of people in the UK who were most vulnerable to this lost their lives in either March, April 2020 or uh, December, January last year, which does mean that we also have this, uh, the, the surviving population, as it were, in the UK is now going to be better able to, to fight COVID than, than was the case a year or six months ago. Um, but the other the other thing that we we don't fully know yet is how this immune immune how the impact of immunity affects severe disease relative to infection. So we know that protection against severe disease is a, is much more long lasting than protection against infection. But what we don't know is exactly how those two um, play out with Omicron. So it could be, for example, that um, although a, a smaller percentage of the population in the UK has been infected than in South Africa. It could be that the the very very large numbers in the UK who've had one, two, or indeed three vaccinations means that we now have exceptionally high protection against severe disease. So, what one thing that we could plausibly see is that although very very large numbers of people get infected in the UK over the next couple of weeks, um, a, a very very small percentage of those uh, succumb to severe disease because of that longer lasting protection from cellular immunity. So, we just don't know that the answer to that critical question which is what portion of the, the huge case counts we're seeing at the moment will get into real trouble. So it turns what SAGE are talking about. So we've had these minutes from SAGE yesterday, Pippa Crowe uh, from the Mirror here, just summing up, almost certainly there are hundreds of thousands of new daily Omicron cases in England a day. Again, phenomenal uh, in, in the worst possible way, given we Omicron was only named three weeks ago, and now it's sweeping through the nation. Without more restrictions, modelling indicates peak of at least 3,000 hospitalisations a day. Now, to put that in perspective, people watching or listening, hospitalisations peaked at around 4,000 a day, as far as I know, the worst um, part of our pandemic. Um, In terms of what we've seen uh, 
no evidence Omicron less severe than Delta, UK researchers, Imperial College. But equally, and I know you shared this yourself the other day and I shared it, which was uh, from, which was preliminary laboratory analyses indicating that Omicron significantly more transmissible than Delta, but less efficient replication of the lungs may suggest lower severity. It seems to spread in the bronchus. Now, I, I know you're, you know, I'm not a biologist, um, but and, and severity in humans is not determined only by virus replication, as Mew Chefik put this, if I pronounce the name right, but severity is but also by the host immune response. I guess I'm just wondering what you think about SAGE, what SAGE is saying. I mean, SAGE deaths, again, this is grim, grim, grim stuff, but there's a graphs looking at a SAGE model, various uh, different estimates of, of where this could be in terms of death, depending on the severity. What do you think about SAGE's, what models tell us? Now, SAGE sometimes gets a lot of stick because sometimes people don't really understand what modeling is. They think it's a prediction. And previously, pessimistic models and reality haven't actually aligned. Freedom Day, I think, is one striking example of that. So what do you think about what the SAGE modeling is telling us at the moment and what, what you think about you know, the, the Imperial College study and actually evidence coming out about if it's less severe? Yeah, all, all great questions. I think obviously, as you've alluded to that, the key thing to, to remember with SAGE is that this is a, a group of scientists who, have, who are putting out all sorts of slightly different models here. And I, I, the, the Imperial papers were, were particularly interesting. Um, but I, 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 I'm personally am very reluctant to lean too much on any, any individual paper, and that's particularly the case with these. And the, the, the death predictions that they put out, for example, I think are exceptionally worst case scenario. Like we're talking there about numbers that I would be absolutely astonished um, to see us us come close to. To be honest, based on based on the wealth of, of research I've seen on this, uh, because they're essentially assuming there that uh, that vaccines work very very poorly at protecting against um, Omicron, particularly for those who haven't been boosted. Like very very poorly to the extent that someone who'd had two doses of Pfizer, for example, and no booster gets essentially zero protection. From infection and only um, moderate protection against severe disease, and that's not in line with the evidence that we've seen um, from vaccine from the early vaccine efficacy studies. So, so I think the Imperial's death numbers are are sort of quite apocalyptic. And even you know, it's the the authors of that paper even have, have said that this was really really should be seen as a worst case scenario and not something that is considered especially likely. In terms of the other models, um, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and then uh, I think it was yesterday or the day before, Warwick, Warwick University put out their own models. I think these can tell us a bit more. So that's where we get those numbers of perhaps around 3,000 hospital admissions per day. The Warwick study was also particularly interesting because they actually did look at the question of what if there is some innate reduction in severity for Omicron. And if, for example, it's only around half, um, half as severe in terms of in terms of hospitalizations and deaths and of course that could halve the number of people in hospital so so that could take us down substantially below um what we saw last winter in terms of hospitalizations and deaths the the added the added tricky thing here is that as i mentioned at the very start we are going to see the number of people in hospital with omicron over this winter actually include a lot of people who are not severely ill with covid but are just are catching it sort of in the community on their way to hospital or even in hospital, but not necessarily becoming ill with it. So, so I look at this and I say um, there is a. There, I think we can't rule out the chance that we end up with numbers of hospitalizations getting up to where we saw last winter, 
Um, I don't think there's there's any solid basis on which to do that. But I do think it's um, well, I don't think it's implausible that we do see a small reduction in the severity of disease. And that could take us down more towards perhaps half as many hospitalizations as we saw last winter. Again, the, the number of COVID positive people we see in hospital may go may go above that. But the number of additional people going to hospital because of COVID may end up being somewhere somewhere around the, as half of what we saw last year. Again, that's 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 based on a few of these a few of these different models and how I see things at the moment. But as we said, I'm not an epidemiological modeler, mm-hmm. and all of these models are really trying to show the the whole range of possibilities of things that might happen if we do various things, if the variant is as as severe as various things, rather than saying here's what they think will happen. I think you've already answered this in the last part, but I'll just throw in Alan Ranger on Patreon asked why, apart from the age profile and seasonal difference in South Africa, why the UK are presumably more heavily, who are presumably more heavily vaccinated, they are, more potentially at risk from a severe illness from Omicron than South Africa has shown to date. Also, Denmark is quite interesting because there's, we know there's a, there's a very significant Omicron wave going on there. So actually data there as well as here is quite useful to compare. In their first 785 identified Omicron cases, 76% were fully vaccinated, 7.1% boosted, 4.3% prior infection, severity much lower than what was seen with Delta. 1.2% of cases were hospitalized, 0.3% went to ICU, no deaths. So is that, that looks like cause for optimism. And the other point is when we talk about hospitalization, it's not taking into account the duration of hospitalization, isn't it? I mean, if we just throw everything into a hospitalization basket there's a difference between hospital being hospitalized for two days and two weeks in terms of the pressure on the national health service yeah all all excellent points so um i'm just trying to remember what the first one was there um so well i'll do i'll do denmark first sorry that that was about sorry that was south africa uk presumably more heavily vaccinated why you know potentially more at risk from severe illness and omicron than south africa i think you've largely answered that but yeah and, and that's one like it's it's a tough one. Essentially, I I don't think anyone is saying this comes back to that. I, I think misunderstanding of what we mean by talking about something being less severe. So I've not seen anyone saying that we would expect worse outcomes than South Africa in terms of severity. What we're saying is the UK has already had its big reduction in severity as a result as a result of vaccination going into the delta the delta wave. So that's where we saw the percentage of cases ending up in hospital come down from around 10% to around 2%. So very, very substantial reduction. So what we're saying is not that, oh, ignore South Africa, we think it's going to be just as bad as it has ever been over here. We're saying that um, what we need to happen in the UK is for the percentage of cases ending up in hospital to, to continue falling. So it was 10% last winter. It came down to 2% for Delta as a result of immunity. We're saying if immunity got us to 2% and it stays at 2%, then we're in a really, really bad situation coming into this winter because 2% of a very large number um, could, could easily get as bad as last winter. What we're saying is we need that percentage of cases ending up in severe disease to, to fall further from 2% down to something like half a percent or even less. And we're saying that it's not clear necessarily that boosters, for example, get us there because the fact that Omicron is better able to evade um, s- s- part of our immunity is also a step in the other direction. So it may be that with boosters, we've been running to stand still. However, it absolutely may be that that's not the case and that 
although Omicron makes it easier to become infected, we don't see that same uh, backward step with protection against severe disease. So I think it is it is it does strike me as plausible that we will see we will see a further reduction in the percentage of our cases ending up in hospital compared to what we had with Delta, with Delta because of that those additional um, sort of bumps we've given to our to our immune system. In terms of the Denmark question, I th- there are a few things to say about Denmark because I. It feels like every day someone someone shares Danish data with me and they're using it to make completely opposite points. I've heard people talking about the Danish data showing that Omicron is actually more severe than Delta. I've seen others, as, as the um, comment made here, saying it's less severe. I, there's two things I think about that. The first is, again, with hospitalizations, we just need to be really careful at the moment, because even if a lot of people are going into hospital who tested positive for Omicron, that does not mean they have severe disease with COVID-19. So some people, for example, pointed to data from Denmark showing that a higher percentage of Omicron cases were being hospitalized. And that would have been my response there. Look, we don't actually know how many of these have severe disease. So so we can't necessarily assume that means more severe. Your commenter here is saying the latest data from Denmark shows that a lower percentage are ending up in hospital, particularly in ICU. I think, first of all, I think that is that is something we should absolutely acknowledge that that is what the data currently shows. And lots of people are keeping a very close eye on Denmark at the moment. Secondly, it's very, very early days. And that means the percentage of cases we would expect to have been hospitalised, we, we, we would almost expect a lower percentage of um, Omicron cases to be hospitalised in Delta because it takes time for disease disease to develop to that level of severity. Um, so it's at this early stage, we'd expect that percentage to be lower anyway. And that's especially the case when, when uh, infections are rising as quickly as they are at the moment with Omicron, because it means for any given person who's been infected, less time has passed for them to develop severe disease than we saw with the slower rising Delta wave. So there's a couple of things there. And then the third thing I would say, which is, you know, it's kind of a cop out, but I think it's worth saying is that it's just quite early days with this. And in South Africa, it took about three weeks of data to get a a decent handle on, on severity and in Denmark, just like in London, we're only about four or five days into the Omicron surge of cases. And again, it will probably take a couple more weeks before we get a good idea of it. Just finally, you're a busy man. That data does not crunch itself. And it is Christmas. Um, again, I mean, I'm just interested in your thoughts, obviously, about the discussion about restrictions in this country. Um, so, for example, if we look at Kit Yates, who's been on the show m- many times, brilliant Um modeler himself a leading government advisor he's quoting from the i paper leading government advisors warned a circuit breaker lockdown after christmas would be probably too late and the most effective way to halt the rapid spread of omicron is to act now uh sajid javid who is of course the health secretary has refused to roll out further covid codes before christmas which is five days uh six days away so kind of running out of time if they're going to do that uh many of us of course have, have made plans but we we, we all lived through December 2020, didn't we? And those plans obviously detonated quite quickly towards the end. What's your take on that whole debate about, because Omicron is going up, you know, that's the point. It's gone up like a, like a you know, a balloon um, very quickly. And as Chris Whitty has pointed out, actually it's going to peak much quicker than, than previous variants in that regard. So the consequences will hit it because obviously there's a delay with ho- of hospitalizations of about two weeks of death up to four weeks. 
So, which is the whole point of when you act, actually, you know, it, it becomes too late quite quickly because you suffer the consequences so long down the track of whenever you decide to to, to act decisively. What's your de- what's your take on that whole debate about restrictions and and the impact they could have at this particular juncture? It's it's really tricky, isn't it? So the the only piece of sort of solid data I've seen on this was the the Warwick um, model from a, a couple of days ago, which which showed that. It actually found that a, a lockdown or a series of measures implemented on Boxing Day rather than a week before Christmas would have relatively little impact on what peak hospitalizations ended up, for example, but that but that restrictions put in place then rather than in early to mid-January would, would make a big difference, which, which again, I think speaks to your point about how um, the delaying that extra couple of weeks could make a very big difference. It's just, it's just really tricky because, I mean, the we people have been right to point out that there are a couple of hints that uh, this may not end up being as severe as we've seen before. It may be that, as, as we've been saying, because of these mo- many, many layers of immunity that most people in the UK now have, that may mean we see a lot of cases, but fewer um, people developing severe disease. And so I absolutely understand why some people look at that and say um, disrupting disrupting gatherings around Christmas is a big, big cost and that people are not happy happy to pay that cost. On the flip side, of course, we don't. We certainly don't have enough information right now to say that things definitely will be less severe. We don't have enough information information right now to say that the number of people with genuine severe COVID will not reach as high as it got last winter, or even half as high, which would equally be absolutely be something we'd want to avoid. Um, so it, it really is tricky. I think you know the precautionary principle at this point says, okay, well, most of us at Christmas are only gathering with a small number of people um, over Christmas itself anyway, that with you know with with families. Um, and that therefore a, a restriction on social gatherings bigger than that, or, or as people have said, after Christmas, after those most sort of sentimentally important gatherings have been had, it may not be an enormous price to pay to um, to to ensure that if the worst case scenario were to be realised, it wouldn't it wouldn't be as bad as it could look. Um, but it is just tricky. This is it, ultimately it's a political decision, um, and the, the the fact is different scientists, different people looking at at scientific data can 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 perfectly well present different um, pieces of data which would lead to conclusions in different ways so i think the idea that there is one neat answer here in the science is a little misleading um, there is certainly a lot of a lot of information out there demonstrating the benefit of of imposing some restrictions on gatherings at some point in the next couple of weeks uh, but again, we we can't be 100% sure in terms of things like severity, which is why you see other people looking at this and saying that would be too much too soon. So I, I don't I really am not in a position where I can sort of I, where I have a personal view on, on what should be done about restrictions. But I can understand um, people people having different perspectives on this. Just, just very lastly, before I let you go, um, just because I think it's quite interesting. I think this, um, again, as you've emphasized, you're not an epidemiologist or virologist, but just as a statistician, this has a, a factor. Rosa Gilbert asked, if I could ask you about the role the apparently shorter incubation period plays in Omicron becoming more transmissible, shorter doubling times, as opposed to higher um, R rate than Delta. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I mean, that that is another thing that can actually work in in different ways. I mean, the the main way is that of course it, it could mean that people are become infectious earlier than they would have otherwise have expected um you know that that in itself can just mean it's it's that much easier to spread because someone might not realize that they need to get a test um until it's until it's too late um it does it does it it sort of 
compresses everything to, into a short amount of time. So, yeah, I, I, I think that's I, I don't think that really changes any of the conclusions we draw here. But I think it tells us two things. One is it gives us the essentially the reason that we have seen this thing spread quite as quickly as we have. Um, or one of the reasons. But the other is that it, it makes it all the more important that for those people who are gathering over Christmas to take take regular lateral flow tests, not just one, but take take them almost every day and as and as close as possible to the time that you're going out to meet people because it makes it all that more in, all the more important to uh, to be checking regularly for whether we might have an infection that we don't know about. John, that was absolutely brilliant. So thorough very detailed, very nuanced, exactly what anyone who's followed you throughout this crisis would expect. And just to emphasize, by the way, what a class act, before we're joined by Ellie Mayer-Hagan, I'm just going to let John go in, joined by Ellie Mayer-Hagan from class to talk about the politics of all this. But John, just to show what a class act he is, a lifeline, as I said, during this pandemic, uh, the Times named him alongside others who've made this big contribution, but they were all white men. Now, what John has done on his Twitter feed is list incredible women who out throughout this pandemic have played a key role in, in talking about the data, the impacts, the sorts of restrictions we should have, many of whom have appeared on this on this show. Um, so do check out, do follow, if you're not following John Byrne Murdoch on uh, Twitter, please do so and share that thread, which goes through um, lists, brilliant women who've, who've made a really big impact who John has learned from and so many of us who've talked about this pandemic throughout have also learned from as well but john you've been absolutely brilliant your work's been instrumental for the journalism of of so many people across the british media and globally so thank you for joining us and uh, enjoy the rest of your day thanks a lot Owen. Have a cheers john take care bye-bye brilliant stuff now uh, before i bring in my brilliant friend uh, ellie may hagan uh, just housekeeping as ever, if you're watching live, do click on the YouTube link and uh, do support the show on patreon.com forward slash owenjoes84. We've got lots of documentaries to come. They're going to be, you're going to decide, I'm going to do a thing on Patreon to ask people what documentaries we should do. So you will decide as you've decided all of our documentaries up to this, up to this point. Uh, and press subscribe, uh, use Super Chat to support the show as well. I'll read all the Super Chats at the end and uh, a special thanks to everyone who give a special thanks to those who've done it. Um, and also subscribe and subscribe to the podcast. That's enough for that. Let's uh, let's be joined by Ellie Mayer Hagen. Boo! Ah, oh, you didn't expect that. You're looking down. Yeah, Hiya. I love it. I'm, I'm actually like, look at what I'm doing. This is neurotically uh, wrapping my. Ellie, I've got to stop you. The finger. audio. What's going on with your audio? What's oh. happening? Very echoey. You can't hear it. Oh, really? No, it's, really it's just extremely echoey, and it sounds like you're in a in a bath or a tin. It sounds like Ellie's in a tin. Is that better? Hmm. Just say, just say a load of stuff and see what happens. Uh, da, 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 da. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I just think, uh, do you want to take your headphones out? Is that annoying? Yes, okay, let's try it. How about that? Uh, go and speak, now. speak now. Is that better? Well, no, now I can hear myself. Oh, hold on. So speak again. Hello. Can you hear me okay? I think so. I'm just going to see what people think. I'm going to ask you a question and I'm going to see what people think about the audio and then we'll make it just, we'll work it out. We'll work it out, Ellie. We'll work this out. I was waiting for so says It's the headphone mic. It's the headphone mic that's the problem. But have you now disconnected the headphone? No, let me try again. Mm. Um, I like this. We're doing, by the way, crowds. We will talk about the politics of this. I promise you. Uh, the, we're crowdsourcing because people are asking, check your mic input on, on Zoom, but you're not on Zoom. So it's the headphone mic, basically. Go on, speak again. Uh, well, I don't have headphones in now. 
No, you don't. Do you know what? I think that's fine. Ellie, right, let's just start, shall we? In terms of, I'm just going to start with a little... Just... When my husband gets back, I'll switch headphones with him. Yeah, maybe do that, because you are a bit tinny. So, um, here's what the polling says. Net support for shutting pubs and restaurants. 30%... This was a YouGov poll uh, done on the 14th to the 15th of December, so this week. 30% support shutting pubs and restaurants. 60% oppose. Shut non-essential shops. 26% support that. 65% oppose. Uh, ban household mixing indoors. 28% support. 62% oppose. Now, during this whole crisis, the public has actually supported lockdown in massive numbers and actually has been far more committed to those measures than the government. They've often thought the government's too slow. They've supported measures quicker and more drastically than the government's prepared to take. On these figures, that has evaporated. Yes. Uh, so are you asking me to comment on that? What I think yeah, of that? That's the basic thing with your slightly silly <laughs> voice. Um, so David Kynaston, who you know, wrote a book about called Austerity Britain, mm -hmm. uh, where he like, it was actually written before the Cameron government. And he actually looked back, uh, at like pre previous periods in our national history where we've had to have austerity, um, or there's been a political choice to impose austerity. And, um, he found that there's two reasons why people support it. The first is that it's necessary. They see it as necessary. And the second is that they see it as done, done in a way that's fair. And I would say something similar applies here, right? I think, especially in the first lockdown, I think there was a sense of like, this is necessary and we're all kind of in it together. It's like a national effort. But I think, you know, since uh, mid-July, we've basically been living normal lives. We're all vaccinated. It's a sort of quite a mad experience to be vaccinated twice in a year. Like, it doesn't happen to adults, really, unless you're traveling to sort of certain countries. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So there's definitely this sense of, like, we've been through the worst of it, and now you know, we can kind of move on and sort of repair. And I think actually like what's going on now is that um, now we're being seen to be asked to do all of that all over again, even though now we're getting vaccinated for the third time, that um, we kind of went back to normal and now we have to go back again. I think people are frustrated by that. I think that the social costs of lockdown have like mounted and mounted and mounted. Um, you can't keep doing it forever because every time you do it sort of destroys things a little bit. 
Um, and all of that's happened at the same time as it's been revealed through like a series of stories over a couple of weeks that all of the people who told us we had to go into lockdown were actually not obeying the rules themselves. So I think that that means that the, the political basis for lockdown, the basis of people consented to it, I think has been destroyed. So now most people don't want to do it anymore, I think. I've turned down your volume, by the way, um, not to silence you, but I think that might have helped. Um, I think, so do you think this is, this is how I see it, basically, it was a social contract. Now, originally people supported lockdown at the beginning of the crisis. And let's bear in mind, lockdown is an extreme measure. Let's just be clear about that. I mean, in the pre-COVID-19 world, the idea that the government would, by legal force, ban you from seeing your friends and family, ban you from hugging, ban you from having sex, essentially, unless you're with a long-term partner, uh, ban you from, uh, from, you know, from, from going to have a pint. All of these things would seem completely ludicrous. The whole world, as we know it, completely turned upside down, which is, of course, what happened. But what happened in March is people were aware of a very, very serious virus, which, if not contained, would overwhelm our National Health Service, so it would be unable to function and provide basic services to people who needed it, causing mass death and social devastation. That's why we locked down, to protect the National Health Service. Now, as time went on, vaccination became seen as the obvious way out. Mass vaccination, which began a year ago. And then there was a sentence last December onwards of, oh no, here we go again. But there is light at the end of the tunnel. We all get vaccinated, we'll be protected. The virus's threat will diminish in terms of serious illness, hospitalization, the, the, the you know potential for the NHS being overwhelmed and death. Now we've had mass vaccination and we're now talking about locking down again. The Netherlands already has. That's when the social contract begins to erode. Plus the government have been seen to violate the, the very rules they themselves have enforced. So that is the problem, isn't it? The problem we have now is people just think this will never end. And actually a lot of the anti-lockdown is written there. Ah, we told you it would never end, we never end. I mean, obviously, you know, the issue is we have a virus which is um, which is resistant to the vaccines. Now, that doesn't, I mean, some people on the left are now, and this is what I'm asking about, because I mean, I don't know how, it, they're not maybe that influential, but actually they would be more influential now, given the polling, that we just need to stop this. We need to stop lockdowns. We can't keep shutting down society. We've got to find a way of making this virus, uh, of living with this virus. That means increasing statutory sick pay, which is amongst the lowest in the Western world. It means economic support uh, so people can self-isolate when they're ill. It doesn't wish away a question which can't be wished away, which is how do you stop the National Health Service potentially being overwhelmed with so many admissions that can't cope and can't look after people with life-threatening conditions? So that's the problem, isn't it? It's people. Are, that's why people are ground down that reality hasn't just gone. Yeah, and I think, you know, when when we talk about um, the left, and maybe you could even say the sort of broader uh, spectrum of progressive views in this country, I think there's been a sense that people on the left and people who are progressive, or at least opposed to this government, have uh, maybe reacted in a bit of a knee-jerk way as each development has happened. And the result of that, is that we haven't sort of coalesced around a sort of viewpoint um, and maybe our knee-jerk reactions have led us to some misjudgments um, and 
have maybe we've missed some opportunities maybe and i think now there is this feeling amongst some people on the left of we need to stop like demanding lockdowns all the time i mean i'm not sure to, anyway to what extent that really is a blanket feeling on the left anyway but i mean the demanding of lockdowns i mean but there is definitely this feeling of we need to stop demanding lockdowns all the time and we actually need to start transforming society in a permanent way so that we can actually it, like in the same way as we have with like diseases like hiv right like you know hiv has killed millions and millions of people and far too late if you ask me but eventually societies have changed the way that we work in order to keep people safe you know not only have we developed new therapeutics and so on but we've like massive public health campaigns free condoms you know that kind of thing um needle exchange you know all of this kind of thing and so we need something like that for covid which i think would look like as you say much better sick pay i think victorian australia is a really good example of this they um they you get two years full pay nearly if you're sick in victoria um and uh yeah be better big ventilation program you know transforming the nhs from not being just a kind of just about managing health service but it's one that is actually like works really well all the time and cope with stuff like this um you know those are the solutions that people want and i think but the problem that i have is exactly what you just mentioned um which is that none of that can be done in the next two weeks and even if it could be done the fruits of that will not be felt in time to deal with the acute problem that we have right now, which is all of that stuff that John, your previous guest, was just talking about. You know, yes, we don't have enough invasion. And if it transpires that we don't need a lockdown, I'll be the first to be very happy about that because like most people, I hate them. And I don't want to have another one. But I think the question that we really need to be asking here is, are we willing to let the NHS collapse or aren't we? You know, that is, that is the question is, and you know, so, Lots of people on the left have said to me, but lockdowns are so destructive and they're so bad for our civil liberties. And I'm like, okay, so are you willing to let the, to risk the NHS collapsing to protect our civil liberties? Like, cause that's, that's the, that's the argument. That is the only argument that we have to have, because if some of those sage figures are right, or even as John said, if they're half right, then the NHS is in a lot of trouble and it's already, and you've got to remember it's in a worse state now than it was at the beginning of the pandemic as well. It's already in a terrible, terrible state. I don't know if any of your viewers have used it lately, but let me tell you, it's not good. And go on. Well, no, it's just interesting because, it, I mean, it's what you alluded to partly that, you know, often those such as ourselves are construed as... Do I have your headphones? Oh, hello. Wait a minute, I'll just mute you while you do that. But you can, you, I'll mute you while you get the headphones. Yeah, the we're kind of caricatured as lockdown fetishists, fapping away to lockdown. Sorry about the graphic image. And yet, actually, just FYI, I hate lockdown. I thought it was a miserable experience. Some people got something out of it. They, oh, well, life's quieter. Uh, we can get to explore various parts of our lives we couldn't before. A slow, I hated every moment of it, and I'm privileged. I'm a middle-class professional who can work at home. I'm not amongst working-class people driven to unsafe workplaces on poverty levels of statutory sick pay that force them to choose between whether or not they can look after their kids, their families, or whether they stop the spread of a deadly virus that threatens to overwhelm the National Health Service. The fact is, though, 
it was an evil, a terrible evil, but it was up against a greater evil. And the question with that equation is, what becomes the greater evil? And for my own view is I supported so-called Freedom Day, perhaps a bit controversial, because my view was that by then lockdown was a greater evil than the threat it was up against. And you do have to manage risk to some degree. Now, at the same time, um, if we look at our current situation, there is no lockdown. And yet people are making rational decisions to avoid social contact. We know that because the statistics about pubs, bars, restaurants, cinemas, theatres collapsing, meaning those sectors need government support they're not getting at the moment. Uh, public transport figures have massively gone down. People, you know, I had lots of parties this weekend, like a big old party gay I am. They've all evaporated because people have made the rational decisions to cancel them. So we've ended up in a situation with a kind of semi-lockdown, basically, through personal choice. I mean, this is why the anti-lockdown rhetoric doesn't work, because you end up with a de facto semi-lockdown, but without any economic support for the sectors who are who are actually being affected. Have you put new headphones in? What's happened? Uh, my husband tells me that it's because I'm too loud <laughs> and it's not the headphones. Oh, people so. have suggested that in the comments as well. But anyway, carry on. No, they said... They... I loud. It has been said. I have got a loud voice. I yeah, turned I... down... So am I. I turned down your volume though. But anyway, but you sound great. Um, I think you're... I don't think it necessarily should be a choice between... Like, I don't think we should have to lock down in order to support those sectors. Um, you know, I think that the government should be giving them support now anyway, because like, I guess my whole point with this thing is we should actually deal with the realities of the situation rather than hypotheticals. And the reality of the situation is that, you know, uh, sectors like the arts, like entertainment, like hospitality are really, really suffering now. So regardless of what happens with the lockdown, they need help. So I think that's the, that's the first thing to say about that. Um, and I think also, you know, we've got to remember how many people like have to continue working even when there's a lockdown as well. Um, and you know, they deserve sort of help and support like, like sick pay, um, isolation payments and also like better conditions at work, which I think basically means introducing union neutrality agreements so that unions can go into workplaces and advocate for people, um, as they should. But I, again, I think. Like for me, the, the question here that I'm like, cause you invited me on because I sort of did a Twitter thread about it that got loads of angry responses, but that's pretty par for the course with me, to be honest, whatever I say, I could right. say like, yeah, I could be like, you know, it's a nice day and I'd be like, ah! anyway, so, so whatever. But like, um, but I guess all of the people that I've heard oppose lockdown up from a left perspective, none have actually been able to give me an answer about what are we going to do about the NHS then in the next three weeks. And I, to be honest, to be clear with you, I'm not even saying that we should have a lockdown. I just want to know the answer to that question. I just want to know, like, if we're not going to have a lockdown, what are we going to do about that? And if we're not, if we don't know what else we're going to do about that, then the NHS might well become overwhelmed and then there won't be a healthcare system. So and I mean, I'm like you. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm a, Oh, go on. No, I was just saying. No, I kept interrupting that. So no, I just, I'm, I'm a COVID pragmatist, which is just that's that's always what I was. Which was, what's the data say? How do we prevent the NHS from being overwhelmed? As long as I'm satisfied on both those counts, 
the data is pointing in a direction which is manageable, the NHS won't be overwhelmed, then I'm like, we don't need further restrictions. If it is the other direction, then then obviously my view changes. I mean, I am interested in terms of the politics of this further because it's interesting at the moment, the government, I mean, we do have a problem, which is, you know, a government which doesn't have public trust in it during a public health emergency is not actually very good for any of us because people cease to take the, you know, look, both of us in normal times, we like people to defy authority, fight the government, fight the regime. On a public health emergency, you do need, when, like in a war, a national emergency, you need some level of trust with what the government is saying on that particular issue in order for society to function and not suffer the terrible consequences of that of that pandemic. That obviously has been chronically undermined. What I do think is interesting, Boris Johnson, a man we both regard as a, a, a bigot, a a charlatan, a liar, uh, someone who is completely unfit for public office, whatever you think about his ever-shifting ideology. What is interesting is the people gunning for him, and we see this with the resignation of Sir Frost uh, yesterday, is actually they are they think two things. They think he's too left-wing on the economy. That's what the Tory backbenchers who are gunning for Boris Johnson currently think at the moment. They only backed him in the first place so they thought he was the uniquely best-placed antidote to Faragism and Corbynism, which they saw is intertwined because the better the Brexit party did, the more likely they saw Corbyn becoming prime minister. Um, but also, um, they... I just lost my train of thought. What was I saying there? Wait a minute. Hold on. Yes, they think he's too hardline on the pandemic. So they think he's too left-wing on the economy and they think he's too hardline on the pandemic. Not something we both think, Ellie. We think the opposite. We think, obviously, he's... And economically on the right and we also think he's not dealt with the pandemic uh properly with terrible human consequences but that is what they're going for him for that's what this rebellion is all about against boris johnson at the moment i mean of all of the things to rebel against boris johnson for i mean i don't even know where to begin with that but like yeah i think <clears throat> as much as i understand that people's desire to call for his head on a platter metaphorically um at the moment I to do avoid Ellie getting arrested there carry on yeah I do actually uh think that all of the people who are like would be lined up to replace him would be worse um and I think that is something worth thinking about um I think you know like Charles Bukowski once said if you're gonna destroy something you better have something better to replace it with and it's not clear to me that there is something better I mean, that's, I mean, it's astonishing for me to hear myself say that. I mean, that, and that just shows how bad things are in our politics, that there is no one, like Boris Johnson is probably the best option that we have of the available options right now. That is really awful. But I well, because think- Rishi Sunak, for example, who is amongst obviously the favourites to take over, and Rishi Sunak was one of the leaders against restrictions throughout the crisis, particularly actually last autumn to winter when he invited COVID sceptics to number 10 in, an, in a successful effort to convince Boris Johnson not to impose a circuit breaker, which then was delayed and became the belated November lockdown, the kind of baby lockdown in all the lockdowns. Yeah, and I think as well, he's, um, I think we have more austerity measures with Rishi Sunak. And I can't think of anything worse right now than austerity, given the, the sort of terrible state that our public sector is in, you know, it's not just the NHS, it's also teachers have had a really terrible time. Local authorities have been, you know, having a really difficult time and they've already cut to the bone. So 
I think we'd see more austerity with him and I think that would be absolutely disastrous in every sort of every possible metric I think that would be politically economically socially would be absolutely disastrous you know and then either one is Liz Truss I mean but yeah that would be a terrible idea I mean I don't even know where to begin with that, with that. is a disgrace for those who <laughs> haven't watched the clip Liz Truss was talking about the excessive importing of cheese into Britain yeah yeah so I think like uh, but what you said earlier just before you got on to Boris Johnson is like we are in a position at the moment, and I, and I guess I wanted to talk about this as well. We are in a position at the moment where people don't largely don't want a lockdown and they kind of hate the government um, and they hate the government for making them lock down. And that is like obviously not an ideal position for us to be in, for anyone to be in. And what I think a lot of people have said to me when I've asked them this question about, you know, what, what is your plan for the NHS? In the next two three weeks if it's not locking down how do we solve that then they often say to me you know we we need to not focus on lockdowns we need to actually start talking about long-term measures that is one of the goals that we have missed in this whole process and i agree with that but i think actually now is the perfect time that we can do that because we can say look this lockdown is now necessary because of all of these things that haven't been done so we need to actually start implementing all of these measures now, like sick pay, like ventilation and so on, so that this, so we never have to do this again because we can't keep going through this destructive cycle of lockdown and release. So I actually think this is quite a good moment for us to actually, well, not a good moment, um, a sort of, I don't know what the word is. You know what I mean by good, not good. Not yeah, good. no, an opportune moment maybe. Exactly, yeah, an opportune moment to sort of, actually make an intervention and say you're sick of this i'm sick of this let's let's try and do something different you know um and i think that that's what we need to do but but by sort of saying that's what we need to do and then uh arguing against the lockdown i'm like fine let's not have lockdown then but like let's discuss what we're going to do then given what the next two three weeks look like that's mm. that's i think my challenge to people who are against another lockdown you know, who aren't like, you know, people who go on pro anti-vax protests and stuff. My challenge to those people is, what do you want to do about the next two or three weeks then? Do you want to just leave it to chance and hope for the best? Because my dad's been rushed into hospital twice this year already, and mm -hmm. I prefer that didn't happen. <laughs> but you may feel differently. Okay, maybe you want to risk it, fine. But like, not everybody has the luxury of that being an abstract thing that they get to gamble with. It's a, very, it's a very, very important point to inject into this. Just in terms of a couple, couple of things, in terms of Labour, um, now at the moment, a lot of Starmer's crew are in a kind of triumphalist mode because Labour have pulled ahead in the polls. Now, believe it or not, despite some of the angry ultra Starmer people on, on Twitter who spend their angry uh, centrist dad days screaming at me, um, and much to the sometimes derision of some on the left, I'm, I'm just, uh, as well as a socialist, I'm, I'm a Labour guy. I joined the Labour Party when I was 15. I voted for Labour under every single leader from Blair onwards, national and local elections. That's going to annoy uh, a lot of people. It does annoy a lot of people when I say that, but that is true. Uh, and, and I've been cursed for something I've done terrible in another life for having people who were voting Liberal Democrat two years ago uh, denouncing me for my uh, anti-Labour treachery and demanding I'm driven from the Labour Party for not worshipping at the shrine of Sir Keir Starmer. 
But nonetheless, they're in a triumphless mode, not because they've done anything, they haven't, but because the Tories have essentially doused themselves in petrol and set themselves on fire. And people now think, oh, well, you can't criticise Labour because, look, they're doing, well, tough, suck it up. What they should have done is use their leverage. Do you not agree with this? I wrote about this last week. Because, and you re- you re- you tweeted this um, uh, last week because I shared it and you got some of these angry people screaming at you in your mentions. Um read it <laughs> <laughs> didn't read don't read yeah maybe it's good for everyone's sanity do you not read they are the most tedious people the most te- look i get screamed at by all sorts of people anti-trans extremists i mean they are tedious to be fair and um, far-right extremists and so on i'm not comparing starmer people to far-right people i'm just saying they're just tedious people to be to yell at they're generally just very very boring tedious people there's but, many different flavors of tedious not one political faction has a monopoly on being tedious <laughs> that is true and there are people on the left people think i'm tedious so you know have some self-reflection Erin. and um, uh, yeah but but what they could have done look the tories have eviscerated they've they've obliterated their majority on the issue of COVID, and what Labour could have done is say, we will back your measures, your very limited measures anyway, vaccine passports, which I'm sceptical about, by the way, but they only, are, uh, research suggests, going to reduce community transmission by 1% to 5%. And that was before Omicron, negligible, really. What Labour should have said is, if you want us to back you, hike statutory sick pay to a livable uh, degree, give economic support to these sectors which were affected, give a commitment on furlough if sections of the economy do... Um, have to be locked down. Um, ventilation, a mass ventilation program in schools and workplaces. They didn't do these things. They just said, oh, we'll just back you, whatever. Yeah, well, I think they've got this. Um, oh, just to say as well, I'm actually not in favour of vaccine passports because I think yeah. that in order to make them effective, you have to make them so strict that then it actually does become like a bit of an infringement on, on civil liberties. Um, just to correct myself, though, they're COVID passports, just so people don't yell at me. They're COVID passports, so it's either proof of vaccination and or um, that you have recently had an infection. Oh, no, you've tested. Sorry, not. Well, you've tested positive. Uh, you've tested negative. Sorry, carry on. Yeah, I mean, I think that's pointless because, I mean, you you got COVID, didn't you, from an event where you had to have a negative la- natural, natural flow yeah, test. Yeah, turns, turns out going to an all-night gay rave with your top off um is fertile grounds to get covid but also fertile ground for some good fun as well yeah it was it i wasn't i wrote those words out because people will yell at me (laughs) carry on um but anyway uh the what we um yes i i think like they've become captured by this idea that um they that they can't get political and that they need to uh appeal to people's sense of patriotism and I don't know where they're getting that idea from because I have done lots of research into public attitudes and what I found is that people when you know when you talk about British values that doesn't tend to move people people are either quite cynical they have an idea of what British values are and they're quite cynical about them or they're just like I don't even know what that means so I don't I don't know and probably they're going to focus groups and they're asking people about patriotism and they're getting answers and then they're like, well, people really care about patriotism. Um, I think, but you know, obviously people are going to talk about the issues that you ask them to talk about. It doesn't necessarily mean that like it's the most important issue to them. Um, and I think they, they're worried about being seen to play politics, but they weren't, they weren't, we weren't asking them to say to the conservatives, you know, we'll back these measures. If you give my mate a seat in the house of Lords, like is that, this is not politics. This is about, well, I mean, in that in that how in that d- definition of it, 
this is actually about people's lives. Like, and what is the point of politics if you don't improve people's lives? And I can, I don't know who they're speaking to because I can tell you that most people that I know and that I've like heard of, like, you know, in my research are very, would be very, very in favor of an improvement in statutory sick pay because either it affects them directly or it affects someone that they know directly, the, the crummy sick pay that we currently have. And polling bears that out, that people are really in favor of it. So I think that actually Labour using some leverage to push for that would have actually would have shown that it understands the reality of most people's lives. But also it would have, as, as a friend of mine put it, it would have forced the Tories to look the voters in the eye and say, no, we'd rather sabotage our own measures than give you proper sick pay. And actually, I think we should be forcing that. We should be forcing the Tories to actually sort of reveal how little they care about the people that they're supposed to represent. And I think this, even if it wouldn't have resulted in sick pay, I think it would have at least demonstrated to the public that like, it is a possibility and they don't want to do it for their own political reasons rather than because it can't be done. Ellie, I want to ask you something finally, which is completely a segue from all of this, but I do want to bring it up, which is the election in Chile today, which... No, no, I didn't. Do you know what? You don't need to. You don't know. It doesn't matter, honestly. Seriously, I wasn't. I wasn't. I was going to ask you a general kind of. No, I'm just. I just wanted to bring it up because for me, so so just put people aware. Basically, there's the there's a there's a presidential election in Chile today. Uh, Gabriel Boric is the left candidate, um, and he's up against a far right Pinochet stooge, um, who basically is a Bolsonaro type. That is high stakes. A socialist against a far right extremist. No, I just, I just want, just because, I mean, for me, I mean, you know, lots of people involved in solidarity struggles with Latin America. I mean, I know Colombia is something you've been particularly passionate about um, and the human rights situation there. There's an election coming up in Colombia where there's a left mm-hmm. candidate with a potential chance of winning, which is unprecedented in the modern history of Colombia. No, I just think, for me, I just think it's really interesting because Chile is where it all began, neoliberalism. And, and this is what Gabriel Boric, the socialist candidate said. He said, you know, Chile was the, the birthplace of neoliberalism and now it will be its graveyard which is you know kind of put chills down my spine and for me you know it has a, a certain emotional significance because my uh, parents took in Chilean refugees like a lot of socialists in South Yorkshire in the 1970s and one family they they took in the mother um mother and two kids my my, my, my parents brought in before I was born before people start I was born in 1984, okay? Geriatric millennial. But uh, no, I mean, it was she was traumatised. She actually ended up taking her own life in Chile, uh, sorry, in, in Sheffield. And that 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 caused a huge trauma, I know, in the uh, Chilean diaspora at the time. And I've had many Chilean, uh, British Chileans come up to me and, and talk to me about about that woman who who died. I actually tracked down the kids who lived with my parents in, in Chile. I spoke to them a couple of years ago. Um, on the phone, which was which was emotional, and it was just because you know Chile was you know Pinochet overthrew the democratically elected president Salvador Allende. It was the first nine eleven, September the eleventh, nineteen seventy three. Around three thousand people died, which is the same as as nine eleven, much smaller population. Um, and neo, this was the testing ground of neoliberalism. We've seen these big student protests and movements. We'll find out the election is taking place now. If your people are listening back, or we might know or, or already know the result. Let's hope it's not bleak. But no, I'll just say generally, it's just, it's, do you not know, think it's quite emotional given, you know, we look at these great struggles in Latin America where 
there is actually, you know, we've seen the rise of the left. There was actually a bit of a reversal, not least for the likes of Bolsonaro. Lula's ahead of the polls. Various left candidates have won elections across Latin America recently. No, I just think there's something quite emotional anyway about Chile and, and you know, the significance it has for the left that if this is, you know, finally nearly four decades, no, five, nearly half a century after that coup, finally justice um, and we can all dance on Pinochet's grave. Well, yeah, I think um, uh, Noam Chomsky once said that the Latin American working class is the hope of the world. Uh, and I think that's like really true. And actually, when I was in Colombia, I think that was one of the things that really struck me was like a very politicized, organized working class um, that I hadn't come across before in this country. And, and it, it, it was just very different to this country and, and in, in a way that I found like completely inspiring. Um, so, yeah, I think, um, you know, to sort of, I think for me, like one of the reasons I got really into Colombia, Colombian politics, um, is because I think like showing solidarity with, uh, the sort of Latin American working class to me is quite important because of everything that I think we in this country can learn from what they've done. Um, and I think, you know, I think one of the big lessons that I've learned in politics in the last couple of years is the importance of events. Um, you know, so for example, I remember after seeing a, a friend of ours, or I won't name because I'm not sure if he wants me to name, but um, after the 2019 general election was lost and he was like, you know, it's going to be rubbish for a bit, but then events will overtake things and then life will just move on to the next event. And I think that's something that Labour should think about, by the way, is that like, yes, they might have good polling now because of the Tories setting themselves on fire, but like events will change things. And I think similarly, with you see that with Latin America, you know, how you had the kind of rise and fall of the pink tide. And it looked like kind of author right wing authoritarian populism was going to take over um, various Latin American countries. But then events got in the way. And then things happened, you know, I think Lula and in the in Brazil is another example of that. So yeah, I think um, I have a lot of hope when it comes to Latin America. I constantly feel inspired by what happens there. And I think, you know, people in this country that want to agitate for a better world can learn from uh, the people there who have achieved extraordinary things, often in the most extreme conditions and showing a level of courage that I couldn't even fathom. So, yeah, I mean, um, I really hope that it goes the way that we all hope basically, is all I can say about that. Um, well, I hope will it, it as well. They will really deserve this. Yeah, I hope, fingers crossed it does go well. And if it, if it does, uh, we'll do a show with people live from Chile. If it doesn't, I'll be too miserable to talk about it, so we won't. <laughs> um, but Ellie, seriously, thank you so much for joining us at very short notice. Sorry about my sound or my loud voice. People actually have defended you in the comments going, can people stop saying she sounds fine, stop saying she's too loud? Suggesting well, actually, you know, my mother always did used to say to me that I was too loud. So there you go. At least make me feel nostalgic. Yeah, no, no one's ever accused me of being too loud. <laughs> they have people say it all the time. Um, uh, that was great, though, Ellie. Where you are? Are you what? Where you what? When are you off? What? Is, what? You are you going? Christmas? Are you going to Wales for Christmas? I can't even remember. Well, um, yeah. we have a plan to go, but um. You know, but on the twenty seventh, so obviously we might be in lockdown. If you know, listening to what John said, if the if the push is currently for Boxing Day, then then yeah. no. Um, so I really hope so, but I guess events well, will dictate. 
well, fingers crossed. Um, I'll see you soon. Um, yeah. Lots of love. We'll, everything will be fine. Uh, but <laughs> see, that, that was great. Thanks. And people saying, as people saying here, Ellie was swell. You know, oh, thanks. Nice to have nice feedback. It's so rare. <laughs> yeah, loads of nice feedback. Thanks, Ellie. You sounded great. Thank you, Ellie. These are just me reading also, out people. I just want to mitigate one thing. Say one thing to mitigate, which is I went for a freezing cold swim before I did this. Hence the bad hair, and um, I was like shivering all the way through this interview. So that if I seemed a bit jittery, that was no, why. No, you do it at all. As Stephen says, Ellie, it's not your voice, which is lovely. It's the microphone setup. Okay, the microphone has got a bit of stick, but you you sounded your you you said great things. That's what matters. I need to buy. I need to invest in a microphone like you. And for the podcast, we'll just sort out the sound, so it's fine. Um, all right, uh, lots of love. Speak to you soon. Bye. Bye then. Uh, oh God. Oh, I haven't ejected you. Sorry. Normally, I have a ejected. <laughs> wow, that was. She she just walked out. She left. Um, cheers, everyone. Thanks for that. So before we leave, what am I going to say? Oh, I'm going to go through some super chats quickly. Uh, because I'm sorry about the chat, we didn't do it in midday just because of COVID. People keep getting ill. So many people I know have COVID. Obviously, my esteemed uh, comrade Michael Walker, he's got the book. Um, uh, Joss McDonald, he used to work for Jeremy Corbyn, very good friend of mine. He's just announced on Twitter. I hope he doesn't mind me. I hope people don't mind me just reading out their COVID status. He did tweet about it, so probably not. Um, yeah, every day, just my WhatsApps, it is. Um, it is an absolute bloodbath going on, particularly in London at the moment. Lots of people are getting infected, obviously, on a daily basis, which we can see from the official statistics, which obviously are only a fraction of the actual numbers of people who are getting Omicron at the moment, which is obviously running rampant. We don't know yet. As we've gone through, we don't know exactly yet how bad that is and what the consequences will be. But I do hope that run-through, very detailed run-through at the beginning of the show, the first half of the show, with John answered a lot of questions. Now he's very clear. There's a lot of unknowns. To quote, to quote Donald Rumsfeld, known unknowns. Don't quote Donald Rumsfeld um, or other such war criminals on a regular basis. Uh, so obviously we will keep abreast of that on this particular show, notwithstanding my thriving social life at the moment. Um, in terms of, I should just quickly probably say as well because my plan is to go. I said this last time to go to Barcelona for the whole of January to finish my book, which is now three years overdue. So I should really finish that book. The alternative and how we build it. A cheerful book. It's for my own well-being, if nothing else. Um, I will still do the show from January. But just so you know, I keep saying the reason we've been less active is because I just need to finish the book, which is what I've been working on. Um, but we will throw everything at the video channel when that's done, which is great. We've got loads of documentaries, which you support, uh, through... Uh, super chat such as Tad Campwell he says happy holes Owen apologies for my attempts to condense convoluted ideas into super chats with questionable readability and grammar writing is hard Tad your questions are always consistently brilliant by the way um, and I agree with you I hate writing personally I literally loathe writing I know that's unfortunate given my job um, uh, but it is hard uh, just a special thanks to David Barata to Salvador Lorette uh, Filler who says only if enough pressure is applied by business because lockdown light means negative for the working public. No insurer is needing to pay out. Very good point. Kieran Buckley as well. Um, if I've missed anyone, I'll go through them in the next show. Um, as I've said, I am hoping to do a show on Chile. That does depend on the presidential results. I'm just not going to do a show 
if the far-right candidate w- wins because I'm going to be so miserable about it. Not to sense myself, which what matters about Chile, but what would be the point of doing a show about such utter misery? So let's hope Gabriel pulls through. I have hope. I have belief in the people of Chile. It's very close. The polling suggested Boric had the edge, but there was some narrowing of the polls. The far-right candidate did come top in the first round, let's not forget. Um, but we will do a show with people from Chile if it's the result I want. Sorry, just to be honest about it. Uh, so fingers crossed there. And there are lots of presidential elections, lots of big elections coming up across Latin America. Colombia, as I've mentioned, next year, a left candidate with a good chance. Brazil, Lula doing exceptionally well in the polls at the moment against Bolsonaro. Lots of people ask, though, what dirty tricks are the Brazilian establishment going to pull? Will they put up another candidate other than Bolsonaro because he's just so disastrously unpopular now? There's lots of question marks. Uh, We've seen it as a spate of elections in which the left have generally done well in Latin America. So in a world of despair and gloom, (laughs) there is some hope in Latin America. And that is often erased because there's hundreds of thousands, uh, uh, hundreds of millions of people who live in Latin America. And there is much we can learn from in terms of those political projects. Uh, Stephen Calder, all the best with your new book. Thanks, Stephen. I will finish it and it will come out next autumn. That's the plan. So it'll be a nice, cheerful book. Um, I'll leave it there. Do, uh, as I've said, support us on patreon.com forward slash Owen Jones 84 so we can keep the podcast, the documentaries and the show on the road. Um, obviously, I am just one person amongst this whole team. Um, uh, do press like, that helps the algorithm on YouTube and subscribe and listen to the podcast. We'll sort out Ellie's audio for that for a start. Uh, cheers, everyone, though. Honestly, it's been a real pleasure. Um, we, we do have more shows this year, but thanks for all of us. You've helped me get through this year. It's not been the best year, let's be honest. Now there was 2020. Uh, but having you lot around uh, has certainly made my life less gloomy and miserable uh, than it currently otherwise would have been. And I hope we've all been a nice community generally as a channel and, and you've all got a lot out of it as well. Anyway, lots of love. Keep fighting. Stay safe. Don't give up. Have Be full of optimism. Uh, and I'll see you hopefully during the week for a result about for a show about Chile, if it goes the right way. Lots of love. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road, uh, forward slash Owen Jones 84. Leave us some stars, that'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.